You know, people say that, yes, you need to have relationships with your kids. You need to know your students. But that has not been like as true as it is in this intense setting. And so you have to put relationships first. And if that means that science content, we're not teaching as much science content this year, or kids are not learning as much science content, that's okay. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher in the Los Angeles area. This is my 17th year in the classroom. And this, of course, is all the above. Your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to our world of education. Shout out to those of you who are watching us on YouTube. If you like what you see, please consider hitting that thumbs up and that subscribe button. And if you are listening on the go, we appreciate you. And um, we would very much appreciate a, a five-star review whenever you have time to uh, safely do that if you're driving, of course. Um, Jeff, man, it's been, you know, we haven't we haven't been in the same room, you and I, since March. And um, I don't know if you noticed, but um, we're only a few months away from March again. It's December yeah, now, man. <laughs> time is flying. Time, it has flown and continues to fly. And uh, yeah, man, it is 2020. What can I say? It has just been a year like no other. Yes, absolutely. And I think obviously everything about this year has been wild. And this year is coming to a close. And, you know, as far as schools go, that means our school year is only reaching the midway points. So, Jeff, you know, there's a lot going on. We are in the middle of a, a, a truly wild school year. I don't know, man. What should we talk about? What's on the agenda for today? Well, Manuel, I think we're going to go deeper on that exact topic you were just naming, right? I mean, it's December. Uh, we're in that final push to the, uh, you know, the, the mid-year holiday winter break in every district that I'm aware of uh, around the country. And, uh, you know, coming up on the end of the first semester. And really, this has been a semester of school like no other. And I say that, you know, knowing full well in the spring, we got sort of just, you know, punched in the face, right? With, with <laughs> yes, COVID. Yes, that's a great way and, to put it. <laughs> Yeah, and like virtual school and like, let's hand out all the Chromebooks, right? And so that had its own degree of chaos. But this this semester was really like, you know, we are, particularly for, for folks like us here in Southern California, who, um, you know, began the year and have remained in virtual school or in many other parts of the country where they've kind of vacillated between hybrid and, you know, and distance learning, um, where we began the year in a new way than we've ever tried to do school before. And we are ending a semester, you know, in the same situation. So we're gonna kind of step back, do a little reflecting, uh, do some debriefing on, you know, the first semester 2020, the, the year and semester like no other. Um, and we got a fantastic guest coming on with us. You've seen her before, you know her, you love her. She's our senior middle school correspondent, Genevieve DeBose, yeah. um, who's gonna help us kind of unpack what this experience has been like for educators, for teachers, for folks working in schools um, as we not only bring this semester to a close, but get ready for the second half of the year, which given our red map as, you know, as America or purple map as America right now, as it may be, um, means we're going to continue with distance learning and hybrid for, you know, at least the foreseeable future. 
And I'm sure you mean red and purple in terms of uh, COVID cases, not uh, political. Yes. Well, <laughs> although there's a lot of yes. red there politically as well, which uh, yeah. <laughs> contributes to the, uh, the the redness of the COVID cases as well. But, you know, we'll, we'll get into some of that. Yes. Yeah, man, we yes, are in does. need definitely of a, of a timeout, of a, a, a halftime check-in on how things are going and what next semester might hold. So this is the perfect time to do that. So yeah, definitely looking forward to that. But up first, of course, we have our, our Do Now segment where we, where we like to take a look at recent headlines in the world of education. And that's coming up next. Stay tuned. Hey folks, thanks for watching All the Above. We really appreciate you and we need your help. We're trying to get the word out about All the Above to everyone. Here's what you can do. Go to aotashow.com, that's our website. All the links to all of our content is there. You can share our stuff on Twitter, on Facebook, on YouTube. Send the links to friends, colleagues, educators you know who could benefit from this type of show. Help us spread the word about All the Above. Thanks, enjoy the show. All right, folks, now it's time for the Do Now, where we take a look at recent headlines in the world of education. Jeff, how are we going to do the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, today we got, uh, you know, a, an opportunity to kind of uh, take stock of who's here with us. So we're going to do a little uh, attendance taking. We got a roll call today, Manuel. All right, roll call. Who's the first person we have in the house today? Well, first up today, we have Deja Williams. Deja Williams. I, I am not familiar with that name, Jeff. I don't think that's a former student of mine. However, we've, we've reached a point in my career where I can no longer remember all the students I've had. Actually, that point passed quite a while ago. Um, <laughs> but I don't, think, I don't think I know her, Jeff. Yeah, no, I, you know, I'm not necessarily surprised because Deja's story is coming to us from the great state of Missouri. Uh -huh. So definitely not one of, one of your former students. But um, I think this is a story that people are going to really uh, just really dig, really appreciate. And, um, you know, it's going to bring perhaps a bit of uh, holiday cheer to uh, <laughs> to these dark and bleak times. We need that. In which, <laughs> in which we live, Manuel. So uh, here we go. Let's let's get into it. Um, so this is a story, of course, about Deja Williams, but comes to us thanks to some reporting from Michaela McGee, uh, who works for the local Fox 2 news station in Missouri. And uh, Deja, as a high school freshman, was mistakenly enrolled in an honors geometry class. The teacher who placed her there admitted that it was an accident, but Deja's class schedule was not changed. So fast forward to today, and Deja is now being recognized because she is now an engineer at NASA. In fact, she lives here in the Los Angeles area, working with NASA for the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So shout out to uh, Deja and the folks at JPL. Um, and although as a teenager, Deja was inspired um, by being a music producer, her growth in math and in science changed her academic course. Now she, of course, is an engineer at NASA, and uh, she says, my mom convinced me to go into a STEM field. She saw that I was getting good at math and science, so she was like, why don't you explore this? There's not a lot of women, there's not a lot of black people in this field. See what you can do, see if you can make a change. After high school, Deja went on to become a student athlete at Missouri S&T, which is one of the top engineering schools uh, in the state and in the country, and now lives in, of course, here in Los Angeles. 
Um, and she was on the team that helped construct the ground support equipment for Sentinel-6, the first in a series of spacecraft that launched uh, in late November that will help monitor the Earth's oceans. So, Manuel, um, you know, we have, I think, in many instances talked about some of these issues of like tracking or expectations that we have for students. And here we have this story of Deja, who's mistakenly put in honors geometry, right? And winds up being a, you know, a, a, a ostensibly a rocket scientist right here uh, working for NASA. So tell us about your thoughts as a, as a teacher working with the future brilliant minds of America. What, what say you? Yeah, you know, this is one of those feel good stories that it's heavy on the feel good, but also exposes one of the giant inequities in our system, which is, you know, honors and advanced courses. And this definitely highlights one of the major criticisms of honors and advanced courses, which is that, um, you know, they, they contribute to tracking and they contribute to a system where certain students get um, some of the, the strongest teachers and the strongest direct to, to college pathway and other students sort of get like a, almost like a second class treatment for lack of a better word. And this really highlights that. I mean, she was mistakenly placed into this, this honors class and thankfully um, that happened. And thankfully she was allowed to stay. I don't know the details on how she was able to stay in that class. I don't know if the teacher advocated for her or her family or just like the other class was already full or whatever. But in any case, you know, it's a, a great story for her. I'm, I'm super proud of her and super proud of all that she's accomplished. In fact, I'm hoping that we can maybe reach out to her and maybe see if she's interested in coming on our show because JPL is right up the street from where I teach and she's doing a lot of dope work there. So um, definitely looking to, looking forward to seeing if I uh, could connect with her. But it, it highlights the fact that our system is set up in such a way that um, we tell students early on what we expect of them. And we do that in a number of ways. And one way that we do that is through the schedule, like students who are in honors classes uh, receive that message and, and largely internalize that message that they are, are built for success and built for uh, college. And students who aren't in those honors classes um, oftentimes are, are sent to signal that, you know, maybe that particular class or that particular subject just isn't really for them. And in this case, I think about how she mistakenly got placed in that class. Why wasn't she set up for honors geometry? I assume it's either because of her test scores or teachers' perceptions of her performance or counselors' perceptions of her past performance. That means those test scores and those perceptions were, were way off because here she is as a rocket scientist. So somebody was wrong. Either the test scores as, test scores as a measure of her potential in math um, were were wrong, that test was not a good measure, or the, the adults' perceptions of her performance were way off because here she is again, rocket scientist. So somebody got it wrong. And you think about all the other kids for whom somebody in the system got it wrong for them. I, I have a... Um, a pinned tweet on my on my Twitter profile about anti-blackness and the way it appears in schools. Oftentimes it appears through dress codes, through curriculum, through all these different things. And one thing that I mentioned is that anti-blackness also is in is within the master schedule. And somebody asked me about that just for clarification. They're like, well, what do you mean? How could a master schedule um, foster anti-blackness? And this is a perfect example, like the, the scheduling, the placement of students in different classes. We've reported before about how uh, honors classes and advanced classes tend to disproportionately favor whiter students, more affluent students, students from households um, whose parents went to, to college. And um, something like that just, just exacerbates the inequities, as has been said many times. And, um, you know, in this case, the, the student thankfully busted through that inequity through 
perhaps just blind luck. And here she is as an engineer. Feel good story, but it definitely exposes one of the major flaws in our master scheduling and our, our placement of students, which is that we, we tell them early on, whether we like to or not, we tell them early on what we think of them and their potential for success. I don't know. What do you think, Jeff? Yeah. Yeah. I, th I mean, I think you captured a lot of it. I, I will say to me, the, you know, the major takeaway here is, you know, it, it's kind of twofold. One, children often take up the space we create for them, right? So if the space we create is one of possibility and growth and, you know, sort of limitless potential, then they will mushroom and, and fill up that space. If the space we create for them is, you know, uh, low expectations and, you know, doubt, um, cynicism about what they're capable of, they will only take up that space as well, right? And so, um, you know, in some ways, this is kind of the like nature nurture debate within education, right? And so this is a great example of, um, you know, we need to create the space so that students can develop to their full potential and limiting them uh, is, you know, is not being sensitive to their, you know, to their needs, it is, it is putting barriers in their way, right? Um, the other piece of this is, and and especially in the moment when you're having a frustrating moment with with a kid, I think you know I was certainly guilty of this at times, and I know lots of educators struggle with this on a regular basis. But when you're dealing with a teenager who's being hard-headed, right, and being a frustrating individual to deal with in a particular moment, and making you know self-destructive decisions, or you know just being immature. Uh, it's hard to remember that like this person is going to grow up and become more mature and more sophisticated and going to like be an adult in the world who's doing probably something really good and interesting in whatever way that they, you know, find to cultivate their, their skills and talents. And so I think we have to remember, particularly in the moments where maybe we're struggling with a kid, that like this moment is temporary and they are, they're in the process of becoming, you know, Deja Williams, right? Um, and that's not to say Deja was a kid who was, you know, who was necessarily struggling in any way, but, um, but it just made me think of that, right? That like, when you're dealing with kids, they make mistakes, right? And so we have to create the conditions around them that keeps them safe, but also enables them on a pathway to do what Deja has done here, right? And really find what they're good at and, and flourish. And so... It's a great story, man. I, I think, um, you know, it's, it's a topic we should probably uh, explore more deeply, I think, on a future episode, the issue of tracking and how that manifests in, in school. So maybe they just helped us, uh, helped us find a good episode topic as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Definitely. And, you know, I think a lot of times um, counselors get to blame for for stuff like this. And I just want to shout out all the school counselors out there because I know that this isn't def this definitely isn't something that's just on on school counselors. I know at my own school site, we have two full time counselors for whatever, 900 students and um, teachers have a lot to do with this. You know, I, I'd, I certainly have had students who I've said like, oh, man, you should really be in advance, you know, history, this and that, whatever. And, and you know, those little messages, you know, they're they're all part of this 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 bigger system of of us adults kind of determining uh, what students are fit for what and perhaps shutting down um you know, trajectories for for kids who maybe just haven't matured enough yet for to to meet our expectation about how they should be behaving in whatever particular course. Uh, so yeah, definitely. All right, Jeff, we have another name on the roll 
for today. Next name is um, not a person, but it's um, Juco. Juco. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I mean, if I thought of that as a person, it's kind of a beautiful name, man. It's like very um, ethnically ambiguous, right? Like Juco could be could be like from every continent on <laughs> on the planet Earth. Uh, could be male, female, you know, anything, right? Um, so interesting. Juco, I'm assuming then you mean Juco is in junior college. Uh, oh, yes. Here in America. It's, it's, it's the cool way of saying junior college. So yeah, yeah, well, all the cool kids are doing it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> okay. So wh what's up with JUCO? Yeah. So, you know, this story pertains to students who are, who are in JUCO or at community colleges, despite the fact that they already earned bachelor's degrees. All right. So this is a very interesting story, I think, um, one that touches on something that we've discussed before, which is this idea of college and college readiness and college access and and really what our role is as as educators in in influencing or, or, or setting students up for college. Now, this story we get from some good reporting from John Marcus for the Heckinger Report. And he reports that one in 12 students who are now at community colleges have previous, previously earned a bachelor's degree according to the American Association of Community Colleges. This accounts for more than 940,000 students. These are folks who have invested time and money getting four-year degrees only to return to school for career and technical education for jobs that don't require a bachelor's degree. In the story, they profile a number of students who already earned bachelor's but are now pursuing jobs in fields ranging from firefighting to automation to nursing, where jobs are relatively plentiful and salaries and benefits are comparatively good. While college and career enrollment, I'm sorry, while college and university enrollment overall um, continue to decline, some career and technical education programs are reporting growth and anticipating more of it as students prep for fields that require faster and less costly certificates and associate's degrees. In some cases, these bachelor's degree holders are obtaining supplementary skills like a computer science major adding certificates in cloud technology, for example. Um, but the trend just might be exposing just how many high school graduates reflexively go to college without entirely knowing why, pushed by parents and educators only, only to end up disappointed with the way things turn out. A um, former Obama administration official, Jane Oates, who was assistant secretary in the Obama administration's Department of Labor, and who now heads Working Nation, which is a nonprofit that tries to better match workers with jobs. She says that, quote, somewhere along the line, it became ingrained that in order to succeed, whether your children wanted to go to college or not, they had to go to college. Jeff, what are your thoughts about these, these numbers and how many folks are at junior colleges right now, despite having already earned bachelor's degrees? Yeah, man. Well, I, I, this story I find just fascinating. I love that we're talking about it. And in many ways, I think it actually relates to our previous story, which was, you know, which is one kind of about tracking and sort of, um, you know, what messages we're sending to young people about what's possible for their future. And um, I, I think, you know, this, as you mentioned, is a topic we took on, I think, in our first season. Yeah, um, episode and three, I think we, man. Episode three. Yeah, man. Throwback. Yeah, with uh, so shout out to uh, Mo Hyman and Rachel Bonkowski who joined us uh, for that conversation. Um, I think we need to come back to this for for an even deeper discussion. Um, but I'll I'll share my initial thoughts here, and I think 
I think we really have reached a point as a society where we need to interrogate the idea of the sort of blanket four-year college for all assumption as the, as the kind of mantra of social justice in education. And I think what is, what is going uninterrogated right now are a few really big things that we don't like to talk about, but we need to, right? So one is like capitalism and how our economy functions, right? And the idea, as we read in this article, right, that, that, that as the numbers of people who are earning bachelor's degrees goes up, the value of bachelor's degrees goes down. Right. At the same time, the cost for earning a bachelor's degree has gone up dramatically, well beyond, uh, you know, what it was 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago when you could like work a part time job in the summer and work part time throughout school and like pay your way through school. That's impossible when school costs 40, 50, 60 thousand dollars a year. Right. So at the same time as the degree is becoming less valuable, the cost is going up, right? And so we're seeing more and more students who are needing to go to college and needing to earn a bachelor's degree in order to access jobs that didn't used to require a bachelor's degree that leaves them riddled with debt that also does not have the same kind of economic return as those careers did before because we've seen, a, you know, to a large extent, a stagnation of wages for middle class and working class folks in this country. So, you know, I think that piece of it, right, where we, you know, we sort of talk around the issue of, of how our economy functions and we're like, we just want to empower people with options. And that's good. But also we need to really be thinking about, like, what is the actual landscape that we're sending young people off into? And how do we best equip them to be in a position where they're not, you know, just just saddled with inescapable debt or spending and wasting tons of money on at a point in their development where maybe they're not yet sure what they're going to do, right? And I get it that there's all kinds of reasons that, you know, that we want to push people. If they don't go right away, they're less likely to finish, right? Um, but this is an issue I think we just have to be more like honest and transparent about in our, in our conversation um, and engage with families openly about it. Um, the last thing I'll say, Manuel, is that there's, um, I think there's this, there's this very parallel sort of tracking that goes on at the higher education level that mirrors exactly what we do in the K-12 system, right? So we create elite academies, right? Gifted and talented programs, magnet programs, dual immersion, you know, programs that cater to wealthier, whiter, more affluent folks um, within the system. And we better resource those schools in our K-12 system. We do the exact same thing with our colleges and universities. That's definitely true at the private um, schools, but that is also true in the state schools, right? So like the UCs, Berkeley and UCLA and these, these schools get far more money to serve a more affluent and more, you know, better prepared to succeed population than the community colleges, which get far fewer resources to serve more, you know, more students, right, who have more academic needs. So, you know, in this situation, I think there's also a conversation we got to have about, like, you know, the reality is the world needs skilled laborers, right? Like, that's not uh, that, that's not a moral or immoral statement. That's a reality. And there are lots of good professions that don't necessarily require a bachelor's degree, um, at least for entry point into the profession, and that pay well. And we are not 
setting up situations where we're either cultivating kids to pursue those paths, uh, you know, in a in a intentional way, nor are we resourcing the schools to support them when they get there, right? So I think there's there's a lot of angles on this, and we should we should talk more about it. But that those are my initial thoughts, man. Well, I'm curious, you as someone who teaches, uh, you know, high school students who are making this step, what's your what's your take? Yeah, this is tough, man. This is tough. I mean, all these issues that we talk about on this show um, within the world of education are, are are quite complex. And this is one of those because I think a lot of us who teach students in marginalized communities, like we know that college isn't automatically the answer for everybody. However, it, the the access, access to college has been so stacked against low-income students, black and brown students, uh, special ed students, English learners for so many years, so many decades that like we want to do all that we can to help our students get into college and overcome all these barriers that have been set up to keep them out. But at the same time, college ain't for everybody. And a college degree, a bachelor's degree, isn't the same now as it might have been back in the 80s or 90s. So, you know, there's that 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 tough, tough dilemma right there of just how much to encourage students to pursue college, to be the first in their family to graduate from college, and how much to be real about the fact that just like the article points out, a lot of these jobs, a lot of these skilled jobs pay more than, than what you would get coming out of, of college with a bachelor's degree. They looked at, in this, in this um, article, they, they profiled several folks who are, are making more as, as nurses. It said something about how uh, entering the nursing field, um, I think, you know, obviously depending on, on where you live, but a lot of nurses enter around the 80,000 uh, a year mark. That was somewhere in the article. I could definitely be butchering that stat, but you know, there's, there's not a lot, of, a lot of jobs you're gonna get coming straight out of a Cal State with a bachelor's degree where you're earning 80,000 a year, like straight out the gate. Like it's not, it's not uh, very common at all. And, and the story, they, they had a group of, of five students in, in uh, community college that the author was talking to. And, and these five were in a firefighting program and four of those five had already earned bachelor's degrees, but they are now trying to uh, become firefighters because for one, there's more jobs available there. Secondly, they pay more. And thirdly, they realize that's what they're more interested in. And coming out of high school, they didn't quite know what they were interested in. So it's a really tough dilemma. And one person in the article mentioned that perhaps we need to reverse our thinking in, th in you know, how we perceive the educational pipeline going. And what he meant was coming out of high school, we shouldn't perhaps just think about going for that four-year degree, but perhaps students should be encouraged to start with these uh, certificate programs that are lower risk, less costly, and less time intensive, and then make their decision if they wanna fully jump in to a higher cost, higher time uh, commitment degree program, such as a four-year degree at a, a liberal arts college, for example. And I really appreciate schools such as mine that are experimenting with different ways to serve students and try to address this very complex issue. So my school happens to be an early college magnet. So for one, we are trying to help students get college credits for free for one, because of the cost, as, as you mentioned. But secondly, we're trying to build up so that uh, students who graduate from our school will already have enough credits or close to enough credits to have an associate's degree, which of course saves them money, but also they'll be set up right there to either enter these certificate programs and, and finish them off or go into a, a bachelor's degree program having already completed two years or almost two years worth of coursework. And my school also has co uh, 
career-themed academies, wall-to-wall academies. So we have engineering academy, business academy, arts academy. Um, so we're trying to hit them with both, with a whole lot of that exposure to, to skilled careers and a whole lot of opportunity to get college credits because at the end of the day, the student is going to have to determine where their interest actually lies. It's very, very difficult dilemma though, Jeff. Uh, as a history teacher, so much of what I teach is built on the skills that, that they need in order to succeed in college, especially if they are entering college in the humanities. So much of what I do revolves around that. And it's hard for me to really think critically about trying to prepare students for a skilled program such as becoming a firefighter. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I hear you. And I think you're right. And I think there are some really deeply problematic aspects of, uh, of the status quo in terms of what we're doing, right? Like there, there is a certain sort of imperialist uh, nature to it, right? Which is like, well, we'll just take all the kids and they'll make, we'll make them like us, right? Mm. And then they'll, then they'll escape the inferior condition that they have come to us in. Right, which is problematic on a whole lot of levels, right? Yeah. On a on a racist level, on a class level, and it's also just dishonest in terms of how our economy functions, right? So I get that within the confines of what we're doing right now, maybe it's the it's the least bad option that we have, but I think we got to speak some truth about the you know the sort of larger system within which we're interacting here and the message that it sends to young people, right? Which is like if you don't go to a four-year college, you're a failure, you're a drag on the system, right? Or you represent, you know, a bad outcome, right? When the reality is we don't have enough seats at four-year colleges for right. everyone. So no matter what we do, everybody ain't going. <laughs> there yep. is a 0% chance of that happening, and that is by design, right? And state colleges and university systems are tracked tiered systems. The UC system takes about the top 10% of kids in California and, yep. you know, some from other parts of the world and the country as well every year. That's what they do. So no matter how high GPAs get, no matter how high test scores get, they take the top 10%, right? And the CSU system takes like the next 20 to 30%. And everybody else can go to community college if you have the money and if you have a seat, right? And the reality is like that is how the system is set up so, it, you know, we, we can't be telling kids like, oh, there's a seat for everyone. All you have to do is work hard. Like the fact of the matter is there is not a seat for everyone. And maybe we want to change that, but there's not <laughs> currently. So we should empower them with some, you know, I think some honest knowledge about how the world works around them that, that empowers them to have some agency and, you know, and some ability to... Um, you know, to have some self-determination within that system. Yeah, absolutely. And we also have to be honest with ourselves in the reality that we don't know what the future of careers looks like. I mean, I can think about what I was, you know, how I perceive the, the, the real world, professional world when I first started teaching in 2004. Um, and then how many careers exist now that did not exist when I started teaching. So the landscape is changing so rapidly. The expectations of what uh, a job in the corporate world, for example, what, what those expectations are and what that type of work looks like is changing so rapidly. Obviously it's sped up by the fact that it's a pandemic. So more folks are working from home than ever. And just in terms of how those interactions go, it's different than what, you know, what it was back in the day. So we don't know what the workplace is going to look like 10, 15 years from now either. So it, it's definitely... 
It's complicated, man. It's yeah. complicated. <laughs> um, but you know, shout yeah. out to schools out there that are trying to trying to figure it out and trying to you know help students with whatever path they might end up on. So again, my school dual enrollment, early college. To me, that's that's a, a smart way to go right now and helping students avoid the costs of a four year degree, but also be flexible to students who are um, you know go the community college route or decide not to go to college at all. So I don't know. I don't have all the answers. I don't think anybody does. This this story here, a very fascinating look at just how many folks have decided to to go back to the drawing board in terms of their college uh, experience, even after getting a bachelor's degree. So yeah, man. Yeah. All right, folks, that about does it for this week's Do Now. Up next, we have a seminar discussion about um, distance learning and, well, pandemic learning and pandemic teaching and how it's going so far. Stay tuned. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. We are super excited to have you with us today, and we are thrilled to welcome back to all the above our senior middle school correspondent, none other than Miss Genevieve DuBose. Uh, you know her, you've seen her here before, and she is back with us to share some wisdom and insight on, I think, a fascinating topic that every educator across the country is thinking about, uh, which is, you know, it's December. We're coming up on the middle of the school year, the end of the first semester, and it is fair to say that this fall semester of 2020, the fall semester of pandemic schooling, has been the most unusual, most unique, most unprecedented semester of school in the history of our profession. And as we head into these winter months, as we head into you know cold and flu season and uncontrolled spread of COVID-19 across every state in the country, we are probably looking at a second semester that is also going to consist of distance learning or hybrid learning or some back and forth between those states of affairs uh, for the vast majority of America's schools and districts and students. And so with that in mind, we wanted to kind of take a little bit of time today and do some reflecting, do some thinking about, you know, how it's gone what's working well, what hasn't worked, and what we should be looking forward to for the second half of the school year. So Genevieve DuBose, senior middle school correspondent, is here to help us unpack the, uh, the fall semester and uh, explore you know, what we have to look forward to for the remainder of the school year. And with that, we're gonna start off, uh, Genevieve, with you and wanna say, you know, first of all, welcome back to All the Above, good to see you, and, um, and uh, looking forward to getting your insights um, on this fall semester. So when you think fall 2020, um, Genevieve, fall 2020 was better than expected, worse than expected, or something else? Um. I'm gonna have to go with something else, Jeff. And first of all, great to see you both. It's really nice to be back on all of the above. Um, and the, this fall has been something else. I, I, I honestly don't have words for it. Um, I just think about the fact that we're in a global pandemic. There, it, we're still in a racial reckoning in our country and we are experiencing dysfunctional federal leadership that is really created um, this 
this experience that is really hard for me to put in words. So I, I didn't have an expectation necessarily going into this fall. I just wanted to be able to support the teachers that I work with so that they could support their students and families. And I wouldn't say it's been better or worse. It's, it's just been um, something that for me has kind of been indescribable. Hmm. Man, well, what do, you, what do you think, man? Better than expected, worse than expected, or something else? I would say probably something else. I think it started, at least for me, much better than expected. Uh, my school district, like a lot of districts out there, really didn't change much about fall semester based on what happened in the spring. So when I say that, I mean, spring, we had a, a, a bell schedule that students were asked to follow and teachers were asked to follow during distance learning. Um, so, you know, fall, pretty much the same schedule or something really similar. Um, students pretty much were expected to log in through um, Google Meet. And in the fall, instead of Google Meet, we used uh, Cisco WebEx. But other than that, not a lot changed. And I think many districts across the country really squandered summertime coming up with these hybrid models that didn't come to fruition, at least in California's case. So I expected the worst based on my memory of spring and how many students disappeared and disengaged uh, as spring went on. So I expected it to start off really bad because I felt like most schools that I knew of didn't really do anything to address the problems of the spring. But, you know, first week of school, most of my students were logged in. Almost, actually, almost all of the students were were logged in. The only ones missing were students who ended up, you know, not being at our school after all, even though they were on my roster. So it started off much better than expected, but I think it has slowly, slowly um, retracted towards what I expected, which was like students not really feeling it, it being very, very difficult on teachers and just overall melancholy at the whole situation. So started off better than I expected, but as the semester has gone on, it's just has has become more and more unsustainable, at least from my my purview. Mm. Yeah, uh, Genevieve, I wonder if you can, can comment on that. Have you seen similar things in terms of like teachers' experience with, with student engagement over the course of the semester? Or what, what are you seeing with, with the kids at your school? Yeah, I mean, we, I, I would say ours was almost, <laughs> I don't want to, not the opposite of what Manuel just said, but we started out um, missing a lot of kids. We had uh, very low attendance at the very beginning of the school year, and it took uh, a, a serious concentrated effort with like all hands on deck to reach out to all of the families and kids who were not showing up, who were not logging in, who didn't have a device yet, um, or those who did have devices but didn't have access to Wi-Fi, or they did have devices and access to Wi-Fi, and for some other reason, they still weren't logging into their, their synchronous classes. And um, it was, it's been, it was, it for me, that was some of my most satisfying work, honestly, at the very beginning of this year was being able to give my cell phone, reach out to families and having parents call me back like, hey, Mr. Bose, uh, you know, my son's trying to get into English class, but it says that he needs to be an authenticated user, but he's, log you know, I'm like, have him log out of all other emails and only his LAUSD, just so much troubleshooting. And so it took so many people. And honestly, from just talking with colleagues, like schools that had really strong systems and strong leadership that 
had a, a plan for how you get in touch with those students and support their families were the ones where you had much higher attendance. And our attendance has, has definitely increased and that's been wonderful, but similar to what Manuel said, you know, I think kids are at this place now where they have the connectivity, you know, they have the place to work at home, but some of them are still choosing not to log in or when they do, they're not engaging. And I think a lot of, I mean, I understand that. And I think there's a lot um, that teachers are trying, um, but it, for teachers, this has been incredibly hard. Um, just really, really, a really hard year. And folks, I think are feeling, you know, the melancholy that Manuel said, and also demoralized in some ways uh, because it's been, it's been so difficult. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting you say that. And I think education has always occupied this sort of interesting professional space in people's minds because everyone in America has lots of experience in school. And I think that to some extent gives people the impression that they they like really understand what it is like to be an educator because they spent 12 plus years or 13 plus years of their life going to school every day. Um, and yet, <laughs> you know, I think as educators, we know like there's a whole lot going on behind the curtain that, you know, even if you're a student, you, you maybe are not necessarily privy to. I can imagine that phenomenon might be even more exacerbated in this moment where school is now in people's living rooms. If you're in, you know, if you're in virtual school like we are here in Southern California or even in hybrid models that we see across the country, still, you know, the bulk of school is taking place virtually. So I'm wondering and maybe Manuel, we'll start off with you um, on this question. I'm wondering what you think the public needs to know about what school in this pandemic world has been like for educators. I think no matter how many times we say it or who says it, I think folks underestimate just how difficult this is for teachers, period. I mean, this has been, you know, some folks, including myself, have have used the comparison of like being a first year teacher all over again. But to me, this is this is worse than that because being a first year teacher all over again accounts for the the amount of planning that has to go into day by day. So, you know, 17 years of classroom experience, but exactly however many months of like online learning experience for me. So I'm having to, you know, go back to the drawing board step-by-step step for a lot of lessons, a lot of activities that I, I traditionally do, you know, almost without even thinking too much about them. So, so yeah, but then unlike being a first year teacher, this is also an experience that's met with so much resistance from, from the public. I mean, a lot of folks out there really just thinking that like, Teachers are the ones who are holding up the process of, of reopening schools. A lot of folks who are thinking like, this is easier for us because now we're working from home and this and that, whatever. And just the mixture, the combination of, of how hard it is to engage with students through, through Zoom and then how difficult it is to maintain your own morale as a professional and feel good about what you're doing because... It's, it's hard, man. I have students this year who I had last year. So students who I can remember what they were like in person. And then I'm seeing what they're like now through this digital uh, learning, uh, distance learning platform. 
and it's like two different people, you know, and you could see, you could see the, the sadness that a lot of students are struggling with. I teach high schoolers. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of teenagers who are missing all these formative moments of their, you know, high school sports, high school clubs, all these different things. And just seeing that and seeing, seeing how much some of my students have changed since I knew them in person and how hard I'm working and how, despite no matter what I do or no matter what, um, you know, other, I've spoken to other teachers, especially in my teaching in my department, um, no matter what we do and no matter how we try to engage, it's just still like pulling teeth because students just largely are not feeling it. This is hard, man. And I know a lot of teachers are saying that. I know a lot of folks who are not teachers are saying like, yeah, you know, teachers got it hard, but I don't think they realize just how difficult this is. And I'm just speaking from the perspective of full distance learning. I can imagine how much more difficult it is for those teachers who are doing the hybrid thing, having to uh, mm -hmm. work with students in person and online at the same time. This is tremendously difficult and I'm really concerned, really concerned. And we've talked about this on the show, um, just really concerned about the long-term repercussions as far as our teaching profession goes and how many folks we might be losing because of this experience. Mm. Yes. <laughs> I, that I was want really to... depressing, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I'm at right now. Yes. We're, we're keeping it real here uh, on all the above. Genevieve, go, go ahead. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, everything, you, everything you said is, is what I have been really struggling with as a literacy coach, because you just in, like absolutely encapsulated what the teachers I work, the teachers that I work with, what they tell me every day. Right. And they're, and, and these are teachers much like yourself, Manuel, who are like accomplished, phenomenal educators who are, are really struggling and at their wits end with like, you know, having, um, trying, to, trying to figure this out and trying to make it work for, for our students. And I, I was reflecting as you were speaking on, you know, you all know that I love to tweet and I'm active on Twitter, mainly as a professional, you know, resource. And the tweet that I had a tweet that kind of went viral this year. And it was because I tweeted that, you know, one day I had two teachers who cried with me, you know, two separate teachers who just in conversations were brought to tears because of how, how hard this work is. And I, and I just tweeted that and I tweeted, you know, like, if you know a teacher, like check in on them. And it had like thousands of likes and retweets, which like, you know, had never happened to, to me before. And I, and it was kind of a sad thing to say, this is like a tweet that's going viral because, but because so many educators across the country, it resonates with them. And I mean, I just, I, I, you talk about the profession and I agree in terms of thinking about the negative impact that this is going to have on our profession. And I also just think about our kids and what you named about your students and the ones that you, you know, had last year, you know, I've had teachers share with me that kids have private chatted them Miss, I think I'm going to drop out like middle schoolers. This is a middle school eighth grader telling his teacher, I think I'm going to drop out. And she's like, you know, private chatting him while she's trying to teach a class. And like it, there's just and, and when we spoke with that student, it, it's so much more of like him feeling disconnected from school and from his peers and from his learning and, and educators and I think that is just huge. I think teachers feel really disconnected right now and kids kids feel really disconnected. And it's just, um, it's hard. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting. You you know you both are mentioning you know I think this kind of phenomenon that is true in teaching and probably true in lots of other professions as well, but uh, that I, I think maybe a lot of people don't necessarily recognize how big of a part of teaching and of being an educator the the kind of relational and performance components of the work like how how big of a part of the work that actually is right and like if you if you can imagine a you know let's say a comedian you know having to tell jokes in front of a camera and an empty room Right. Uh, like <laughs> the the experience, like they they might not like being a comedian anymore without the kind of reciprocation of like we're we're telling this story and experiencing it together and getting a laugh together. Right. Um, it's totally different than just like the pure performance without the relationship with the audience. And at least from my perspective, what I see so much of that that seems missing for a lot of teachers is the like is the in-person connection with the kids and how central to the enjoyment of the work that actually is. Because because even if a kid is chatting you, uh, you know, an intimate comment, right, like that's just different than being in person and talking to to the young person and seeing them in the hallway and giving them a pat on the shoulder during passing period or, you know, whatever it is that, you know, that that you can do to help, um, you know, that that young person persevere. And so, you know, just hearing you both talk, um, I think to me is really accentuating the like, you know, I think families are seeing the loss of social experience for young people. And maybe what's going a bit unrecognized is like the the satisfaction that people get from the work of being a teacher or being an educator comes from the you know the physical experience of being in relationship with the students and with you know other people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you know we we've talked here about uh, some of the some of the real stuff that's going on, and and you know frankly some of the stuff that that is um, you know it's a bit demoralizing about the reality right now. But I am wondering um, if you have seen any just kind of like unexpected benefits. Um, or even just positive things that you're seeing that that we have realized coming out of this, you know, pandemic semester of distance learning that maybe we didn't realize um, before. Um, and Genevieve, why don't we start with you? Yeah, um, I think I two things kind of come to mind for me. One is is more that we now, um, <clears throat> and I don't even want to say as a profession, but as a schooling system are looking and really recognizing more the value of how important it is to be connected to what you were just naming socially and emotionally to our students. And I think there are certain, you know, like the teachers that I've experienced in my 20 years in education, like the ones who really stand out to me are the ones who had really strong relationships with their students. And there was a real sense of trust between those, those kids and their, their teachers. And, Um, I don't think as a school system, there has, you know, people say that, yes, you need to have relationships with your kids, you need to know your students. But that has not been like as true as it is in this intense setting. And so seeing, you know, schools prioritize, you, you, you have to put relationships first. And if that means that science content 
we're not teaching as much science content this year, or kids are not learning as much science content, that's okay. And so for me, that that has been something positive that there, there has been more of an emphasis on connecting with kids and knowing them, you know, personally. Um, and, and then I'd say, um, I mean, I'm never, I'm not a fan of standardized testing. And the fact that we didn't have any state tests in California last year to me uh, was a positive. But this, there's more of a focus in this setting on assessment that's closer to the work and more formative assessment. And for me, that has also been something that I see as positive. And I'm hoping that as we transition, who knows how, when that would be, but back to some kind of in-person learning experience that we can really stick to assessing kids on what they're learning and what's closest to the work and in real time. Um, And so that's been a real big focus too of like, you know, giving kids real, like, you know, regular frequent feedback because we are so disconnected from each other. Like, I, I need to be able to see what you're creating and give you personal feedback on the work that you are um, submitting or the comments that you're making or what you're contributing to class discussions. So uh, that for me has been, um, you know, a, a bit of a silver lining in 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 this time. Yeah, I would second all of that for sure. I, I think I think back to something one of my students said back in, I think it was April or May when things were like fully, fully shut down um, across the nation. Uh, the student said something about how like, despite how bad the pandemic is, maybe we needed this like global timeout to sort of reevaluate ourselves and reevaluate things. And I think distance learning definitely, definitely has caused us to reevaluate a lot, such as the the value of those standardized tests, for example. I know myself and many teachers have had to reevaluate grades and, and what a grade really reflects because it's it's more difficult than ever to really determine, you know, how much a student should be um whatever penalized for for late work, for example. Like that was a thing that a lot of teachers did. Like, you know, one day late it's 10% off, two days late it's 15%, whatever. And now it's like, wait, no, you can't do that because like clearly there are a lot of limitations to, you know, internet access and all these other things. And I think a lot of folks have had to reevaluate their um, assessments and and their grading for sure. A teacher reached out to me recently on Twitter asking if I were you know, how I feel looking back at, at the spring and, and the, the call to give them all A's. And, and this teacher asked if I was planning to do the same thing. And I told him, you know, things are a little different this time around. We are much more organized at, at my school site. You know, although we didn't change anything major from, from last year, we are more organized. Teachers are definitely, I mean, students are definitely uh, engaging a lot more. At least they're log- logging in a lot more. And, and things have changed a little bit. But I told him, you know, still it comes down to really just like, I wouldn't feel good giving anybody a D or F. And as far as A, B, C, it's really hard to determine what that should really reflect because of all the different variables that we're dealing with. And this teacher basically told me the same thing, like they're in the same spot, like they've been working really hard on their daily lessons. Students are logging in, but it's hard to get engagement and it's hard to get work back from them. And and it's clear that so much of it is because of just the weight of, of living during this pandemic. And they also 
this teacher said they also don't know what they're gonna do. They gave all A's in the spring, but now it doesn't feel quite right because a lot of students are just performing, you know, really great during, the, you know, despite all the circumstances and and others are are not. And it's just, it's really difficult. So reevaluating our grading systems, I know my my department at my school site has, has embarked on a journey to transition towards standards-based grading. But even if we were already doing that, Honestly, like this semester, if we were, you know, doing standards-based grading, I think we would still run into problems because a lot of students probably could demonstrate mastery. It's just so hard to get certain students to to really want to do anything right now. So reevaluating that, reevaluating what gets taught, reevaluating, you know, how much of of this particular um, content do students need to learn versus spending more time on making those connections, like Genevieve said. So all that reevaluating everything that's happening has been an added benefit. I think um, we needed some some sort of interruption to really like shake the system and force us to really think about these things. I've, I've always known grading was a problem, but I've, I've never really broken from my just habits of what I was already taught. And here I am doing that because of these circumstances. So I guess, I guess those will be the benefits. Oh, and going paperless, like <laughs> we're fully paperless <laughs> now. So then, you know, that's, yeah. that's a little bit of a benefit, I guess. No, no line at the copy machine uh, before first period. Uh, None of that. No, no complaining that the toner is out or there's a paper jam and class starts in four minutes. What am I going to do? Uh, now it's the internet went out and class starts in four minutes. Come on, reset, reset. Yeah, man. I, I remember I feel like my greatest moment of panic as a teacher was, you know, you're, you're printing on your prep period, you know, for like your fourth period class or whatever. And you get to class, you think you're ready to go. And then the first kid flips over the quiz and you realize it like didn't print double-sided and you only got the first, yep. you know, the first page on. Like, um, thankfully, uh, the pandemic has taken that experience away from us, uh, I suppose, uh, if, there, if there is a silver lining. Um, so, you know, I, I think that... Um, the, the, the sort of harsh reality of the situation, right, is obviously just that distance learning and school during the pandemic has been hard uh, for, for everyone involved. It's been hard emotionally. It's been hard logistically. It's been hard, you know, sort of morally and professionally. Um, and even though, I, you know, from all indications that I've seen, we're doing way better than we did in March, right, or even in June of last year. Uh, in terms of teacher skill and, you know, in terms of systems at schools and with districts. But nobody's really satisfied with, with where we are now. And it does make me think, you know, we have this opportunity at the semester break to kind of pause, shift a few things, right, and, and do a little bit better in the second semester than, than we did in the first. So I'd love to hear from you both about, you know, given where we are moving, you know, into um, December now and into the holiday break and that kind of period of reset, what should we be focusing on for second semester in order to kind of finish the school year strong? I can kick us off. Um, oh, there's a lot. I'm gonna, I, there's a lot of things that we can focus on, um, but two things that really resonate um, and kind of rise to the surface with me um, are things that we've already kind of discussed today. And one is how well do we know our kids? Um, we have found um, that 
while we do have our students now more, you know, more kids attending, we don't have as many students uh, who were missing. Uh, some of the, some of those kids are not coming every day, right? And so we have um, through our schedule, kids see each uh, teacher twice a week synchronously. And I have teachers that will tell me, you know, consistently, this kid will come one of those two days. And so when I think about what we need to focus on, we need to focus on how well we know our kids and what are we doing to ensure that those students who are only coming 50% of the time or are, uh, you know, missing in other ways, how are we pulling them back in and supporting them and their families with whatever they need? So for me, that's number one, kid focus. Uh, getting them to be in in school, you know, from their homes. But then the second piece, and I've said this a million times on this show and to anybody who will t- listen to me, is this idea that, that what students are learning and how they're spending their time and how they're growing their skills and their intellect and developing their identities in school Uh, has to be applicable to their lives. It has to have some sort of relevancy to the real world. And we're talking about, you know, like kids, we are are facing some serious issues and problems right now. Why don't we create learning experiences where kids can be the ones to help solve those problems, right? So if I had like, if 50% of my students are only coming one day of my two synchronous days a week, is there some sort of way that we can find those missing kids, right? Like, and kids can be part of that. Could they be interviewing their peers about why they're coming and why they're not coming? Could they be doing research on, you know, what would make kids most engaged when they are actually there? Um, I feel like that needs to be something that we really focus on in the second semester. It can't be the same as what's been happening this first semester because like Manuel already said, like kids are kind of over it. And like I said, some kids just aren't coming anymore, right? And so what is in this absolutely unprecedented, crazy time, what is going to make kids want to come to school from their homes on a laptop? They have to be the ones like leading the learning and they have to be the ones like solving the problems. And teaching and learning from and with each other. And so for me, that feels like a really big push for second semester is how do we create some authentic student-led learning experiences that could actually create some positive, have real world, uh, you know, implications for making this horrible situation better. Yeah, uh, I agree with that, certainly for sure. And I'm really curious what schools and school systems are making time to sort of have those discussions and sort of get a game plan together. I really, really wish there were a way, I mean, of course there's a way we do whatever we want, but it's not going to happen. But I really wish there were a way to like take the last week of the semester and, you know, let students have an extra week off, you know, make that part of their winter break and have the the adults, the the teachers and staff use that week to really get back together and reflect on the semester and make changes for next semester. I think one problem is that we're going to just, you know, work all the way up until break. Everyone's going to go off their separate ways and come back. And it's the first day of semester two and not much is going to change. I think we really, really, really need like a halftime check-in, halftime report, um, looking at data, looking at student feedback, what what went right, what went wrong for a semester and how can we um, address that for second semester. I just, you know, I don't see that happening, but I think we really need it. 
-hmm. Myself, honestly, I feel like I've done just about everything that I could think of and just about everything that I've heard be advised in terms of how to engage students and, and make learning relevant for them. Um, my history students this semester, I've done check-ins with them and collected feedback and pretty much every topic that we've covered for my US history class um, was based on their, their interest. So I gave them like the menu. I was like, look, we can't go over everything that I normally try to go over. So what would you like to learn about and how would you like to learn about it? And I, I've done all that and their interest is there. We have great conversations, but then when it comes down to the actual work, then, then it's like, okay, hardly anyone turned it in. So what's going on? And for me, honestly, I'm really thinking about what can I do next semester to prepare students to feel good about fall 2021. I know fall 2021 is a long ways, ways away, but fall 2020 was a long ways away at one point. And we were talking about how we need to start planning for that, start planning for that because this pandemic wasn't gonna disappear. And right now I'm thinking like, I really, really want my school and other schools to really invest on what's it gonna look like fall 2021, assuming, assuming by then, of course we don't know, but assuming by then that we'll be able to um, have some semblance of normal school again. Like how do we help students feel good about themselves in school so that we can hang on to them and excite them about a return to school. So I'm thinking about, for example, the, the middle schooler that Genevieve just referenced who's thinking about dropping out. Like how do we hold on to students and survive hopefully what will be hopefully the last um, phase of this pandemic so that we could get back in fall 2021 and have stronger systems, systems such as grading systems and systems such as like student voice and choice for, for uh, learning and all that. Like how can we really build up towards that? So that's where a lot of my thinking is. Like for my own classes and my own students, I certainly want to do my best to like engage them and keep exploring creative ways to engage them. But I really want them to just like bear with me and bear with the school and bear with the system um, until this all hopefully one day um, goes away. So, yeah. Well, I, you know, I very much appreciate the uh, the wisdom and perspective you you have both shared. And, you know, I think I probably would just add to um, to this this final point. And I think you you mentioned it um, Manuel, the, the need for time and the need for educators to come together and really reflect on what has been going well, you're right, and plan strategically for um, for the second semester. I know at least here in Los Angeles, and you know, principals and folks I'm in touch with in other parts of the country are experiencing something similar, um, where we are, you know, the pressure for schools to have plans in place to reopen. Um, while all of the public health data is going in the exact opposite direction of, you know, of it being safe to reopen, is taking up so much time and bandwidth from folks um, at a time when it feels to, to me like if I were king of the education world, I would say today, school's going to be closed, physically closed the remainder of the year. We're going to be in distance learning. And our job now is to do the best we can with distance learning for the remainder of the year. Here's the time we're going to create for educators to come together, plan, right, and, and be in a, um, you know, as good of a situation as we can be instead of spending all of our efforts on, on plans that, frankly, we're not going to be able to safely implement um, anytime soon. So, 
Um, you know, it has been, I think it's fair to say, uh, you know, among the most challenging periods uh, of education in our, certainly in our lifetimes, if not ever in the history of, of public education. And, um, you know, and it is only thanks to um, the incredible practitioners like uh, Genevieve DuBose, like uh, Dr. Rustin here, that, um, you know, that schools are running and the kids are learning as, as much as they are and being cared for as, as much as they are, or as much as they can be through, you know, through a screen. But before we uh, conclude here, I, I did want to end on perhaps a little bit of a lighter note. And um, for those of you who don't follow uh, Genevieve on Twitter, you, you should because uh, she says lots of interesting things. And once in a while, she puts up interesting pictures. And uh, around the time of celebrating Thanksgiving, Genevieve put up a picture of something on her feed that, that I think I can only describe as uh, beautifully, horrifyingly puzzling. Uh, <laughs> That seemed to be a concoction of jello and pineapple and cheese and some white stuff. I'm not quite sure. But Genevieve, I want to give you a moment to explain to the all of the above world what were you making there and <laughs> and make your case uh, that the world should try it before they judge. <laughs> yes. So I have a great aunt. Her name is Grace. Um, she's my grandmother's sister. She is still living. Uh, and when she used, my family would always host Thanksgiving or Christmas. Uh, and she would always bring this delicious pineapple, orange, lemon, uh, dream whip cheddar cheese dish. And it sounds disgusting because who would want to pair cheddar cheese with Jello? But it is so good. It is sweet and savory. And for people like me who are texture eaters, who like texture, you've got the like crushed pineapple, you've got the kind of hard cheddar cheese. It's amazing. And so because Thanksgiving was much smaller this year, um, you know, Aunt Grace was not coming. She's an elder and, uh, you know, we don't live in the same house, so she was not coming. Uh, but I decided to pay homage to her and make this delicious meal. I mean, this delicious dish. And I posted a picture of it on Twitter and got some very funny reactions. And people, <laughs> some people were disgusted by it, but they had never tried it. So I just say to all of you, don't knock something until you try it. And I learned recently on my a trip to a national park, you got to try things that are hard at least twice. So I would say if you taste it once, this cheddar, pineapple, dream whip, uh, jello dish, and you think you don't like it, give yourself another opportunity to try it. It's delicious. And it's, it's one of those like 1950s jello recipes. There are some really fascinating ones out there. You could go down a rabbit hole on the internet, uh, but there's some good ones. So I suggest that all of you try it. It's called sawdust. It's called a sawdust salad. Sawdust salad. All right. Well, even the name, even the name is just like, <laughs> what in the world? Uh, sawdust, you know, I know, but it's so good. It's so good. And only, sorry, last thing I'll say is only my nine-year-old nephew and I ate it. So yeah. I still have a large portion left that I will be eating over the next probably week or so. 
Okay, so if uh, if folks want to get a taste and you live in the Los Angeles area, uh, maybe follow Genevieve on Twitter. Hit her up in the DMs. We'll see. We'll see what kind of delivery can be arranged yeah. and get you some some sawdust salad. <laughs> Oh, so wow. So good. Yes. Well, uh, Genevieve DuBose, uh, Senior Middle School Correspondent here on All the Above. Thanks again for joining us today. Always a pleasure to have you and your insights here with us. And uh, folks, we have reached the end of our seminar and it is time now for today's Class Dismissed. Stay tuned. What up, AOTA family? If you're not already following us on social media, man, what are you doing? We're available on Twitter, at AOTA Show, and on Facebook, also, at AOTA Show. And we've been putting up extras, including exit tickets. Exit tickets are short videos with our guests where we ask them about a few of their favorite things. Of course, we also put up links and, and, and articles and stories related to the world of education. So definitely, if you're not already, please consider following us on social media and spreading the word. Now back to the show. All right, folks. We've reached that time in the episode where we like to give shout outs to folks doing great things in the world of education. And today's shout out is um, kind of close to home for us because today's shout out, we're actually shouting out somebody who has appeared on our show and is um, very dope, very dope. In fact, some might say he is um, too dope. Jeff, who are we shouting out? Oh, Manuel, I never, never shy with the uh, <laughs> the comedy there. Uh, today, um, our shout out is going to, uh, as you said, former guest uh, here with his um, compatriot uh, from Denver, uh, none other than co-host of the Two Dope Teachers and a Mike podcast and newly crowned Colorado Teacher of the Year, Mr. Gerardo Munoz. Um, so Gerardo, as I said, named Colorado Teacher of the Year, which, uh, of course, comes with just, uh, you know, huge notoriety and recognition of his amazing work, uh, but also means he automatically gets entered into as Colorado's entry into the National Teacher of the Year um, Award, which will be given out um, later in the later in the school year. And, uh, you know, Gerardo, uh, you heard him here and all the above. If you haven't yet checked out the podcast, it's Two Dope Teachers in the Mic. We highly recommend he and Kevin uh, Adams do a great job of that podcast talking through a you know a practitioner's lens about education and we just want to give a shout out to someone who um, you know has has been doing amazing work and it's great to see good people educators of color out there being recognized for their great work yeah definitely definitely so shout out to Gerardo love seeing folks get recognized for their great work especially educators who well, like you said educators of color also um, educators who who really speak truth to power when it comes to uh, having a, a critical lens about our education landscape and all the different ways that we can interrogate all the all the uh, oppressive systems within it which Gerardo does regularly so definitely shout out to him Colorado teacher of the year super super dope too dope, in fact. Um, and I also I wa also want to shout out um, my little buddy. So I have a little buddy that, you know, we record in in our own homes now because we are socially distanced in our recording in this episode of these episodes, I'm, I should say. 
And I have a, a little buddy who would lay out in the hallway and be snoring so loud while I recorded. That's my uh, my Boston Terrier, Dottie, and she recently passed away. And this is my first time recording without hearing her snoring in the background. So shout out to her and shout out to all of our little furry buddies who who um, give us that, that little love and attention that we need after a long day at work in this education system. All right, folks, thank you for being with us for this episode. And if you haven't already, please consider giving us that that five-star review or that thumbs up. It goes a long way towards helping us grow this show. All right, so thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time.